Well, good morning, Commissioned. It is uh, good to be with you this morning. And again, look to the Scriptures, 1 Thessalonians. You can already start uh, turning in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. And uh, thank you, Jeff, for leading us in, in uh, those songs. And as you noticed from uh, the theme of those songs, the, as, as Jeff mentioned, the uh, focus on Christ, our hope in life and death, and especially that last hymn, has, uh, is quickly becoming one of my favorites. It's a new one from the Gettys that just came out in the last year or so. And it is a wonderful summary, actually, of the, the topic that uh, we are in the midst of here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Well, when we raise the topic of death, it immediately draws to our attention the reality of suffering, the reality of sin, the reality of the curse, and the reality of, of bodily decay. And, and much of that suffering, we would acknowledge, is inescapable. We live in a world that has been cursed. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, it is a world that groans under that curse, awaiting redemption. And so we're faced in this world with constant reminders of suffering constant reminders of pain, constant reminders of the curse. Paul also says in Romans 8 that even our bodies groan. Our bodies are under that same curse. And so things like pain and death are not far from us. They're very real in our lives. And so we live in a world of suffering and in a world in that sense in which we can do nothing to change. But some of the suffering that we experience related to death is suffering that we bring upon ourselves. Jesus actually deals with this in his Sermon on the Mount when he talks about worry and anxiety. He addresses it, worry of the unknown, worry of suffering, worry and anxiety about what tomorrow will bring and even in many ways worry about what death will bring and what is associated with that. And, and that is a suffering, a kind of suffering that we bring upon ourselves. And it is that kind of suffering, that kind of anxiety and worry that plagued a significant element of believers in the Thessalonian church. Perhaps it wasn't the entire church, we don't know exactly. Paul never mentions just exactly what the dynamic was there in Thessalonica, but this was something that was lacking in the Thessalonians' faith, an issue that needed treatment. And so once Timothy comes back from visiting that church and he brings back a report about how the believers are doing in Thessalonica, this is one of the areas that Paul has to deal with, a kind of suffering, a kind of worry and anxiety related to death that was unnecessary. And in particular, as we studied already last time we were in 1 Thessalonians, we saw that the likelihood of, of the, the, the origin of this, this anxiety, this worry, uh, this suffering over the topic of death had to do with a perception among the Thessalonian believers that those among their brethren who had passed away were somehow at a disadvantage, That somehow to die means to enter into a state of disadvantage. 
Now, we're going to look at it specifically in the context of 1 Thessalonians 4 and what they perceive to be that disadvantage. But even when we look at death around us today, and even when we think of the death of loved ones, those who are in Christ, we have this gnawing assumption that death is a disadvantage. Just think of it. That when a a believer dies, there's this assumption that we face that while we might profess otherwise, we think that somehow it has led them to a disadvantage and they would be better off if they had not died. Now that was what many in the Thessalonian church were thinking. They had a reason for it. We're going to look at it. But it is the concept that, or the, the assumption that those in Christ who have passed away somehow, in some way, are at a disadvantage compared to those who remain alive. Now this text that we're going to look at in, in greater detail the more, this morning, and as we looked at already, a couple of weeks ago, and as we will continue to look at in the weeks to come, helps us deal with that issue, helps us correct that assumption. Now, just by way of contextual reminder here, just to pull back a little bit and recognize what Paul is doing here, in First Thessalonians, the first three chapters are filled with a lot of recollection and updates, and we've gone through those three chapters at, uh, in detail already, but we've noticed that at in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, in response to the report that Timothy brings back to Paul, who's in Corinth, from Thessalonica, Timothy brings back the report from Thessalonica to Paul, Paul references a continuing desire on his part to get back somehow to the Thessalonian church or to do something to complete what is lacking, what is deficient in their faith. And then in verses 11 to 13, Paul proceeds to pray about those issues, to pray for these deficiencies. And then beginning in chapter 4, in a lengthy section that will go all the way to chapter 5, verse 22, Paul begins dealing piece by piece, issue by issue, with the issues that were lacking, the deficiencies in the faith of the Thessalonian converts. And we are in the second main section here of this instruction for what is lacking. We've gone through chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. Paul deals with sexual ethics in verses 1 to 8. He then deals with brotherly love in verses 9 to 12. And then he turns to a brand new topic, and it is the topic related to the dead in Christ and their advantage or disadvantage. And that's where we are in. And in our previous study of this paragraph, verses 13 to 18, our previous study focused on the first two verses of that section, verses 13 to 14, and the title of that sermon was, Doctrine Makes All the Difference. And the focus there was that as Paul begins to deal with this issue, he points to what is not only just a deficiency in faith in a general sense, but a deficiency in their knowledge. And Paul emphasizes to the Thessalonians that it is doctrine, it is knowledge It is truth that will alleviate their concerns. What they needed was right teaching. And that teaching would alleviate worry. So he writes this in verses 13 to 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, 
so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now that was our introduction to this paragraph where Paul essentially emphasizes the need for instruction on this issue and how that would solve their their problem. We're going to go keep going through the text. Today we're going to look at just one one verse. I want to go through this text for several go through this text slowly for several reasons. One uh, is because its truth is so practical and and we need this especially in our secular society which is so obsessed with with death and and catching disease and germs and things like this that it is so very important for us that we have a biblical understanding of death that we recognize what death is to the christian and what lies ahead of us we need to go through this text slowly for that reason but also because this is a misunderstood and even ignored text of scripture Eschatology is often relegated to the realm of the, uh, of, of the abstract, of the ambiguous, even of the bizarre. And so Christians get uncomfortable with eschatological issues, contributing to their own worry and anxiety in this life. And so it is so very important for us to walk through this text slowly and gain as much as we can for the sake of our peace and comfort. In the rest of this paragraph, Paul goes on to write this. He says this, beginning in verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This morning, we're going to look at verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, in this text, and specifically from verses 15 to 17, which really comprise the the, the heart of this paragraph, the, the substance of this teaching, Paul will explain to the Thessalonians why they must not worry about fellow believers who die before Christ's coming. Why they must not think that for the believer to die means disadvantage. Paul is going to deal with that specifically in these verses, verses 15 to 17. And he lays the groundwork for this explanation in verse 15, which is why I want to look at it specifically this, this morning. And as we look at verse 15, we're going to see two important emphases that will carry us through the rest of this section. And it is these. First of all, Paul gives a reassuring declaration in the first half of verse 15. We're going to pull that apart and examine that a reassuring declaration. And then number two, he will give a resounding denial. He will come and confront the worry of the Thessalonians directly in the second half of verse 15. So a reassuring declaration and a resounding denial. Let's look at the first of these now, a reassuring 
declaration. You could subtitle this point, I speak the words of Jesus. I speak the words of Jesus, a reassuring declaration. Paul says this, notice this in verse 15, first half of verse 15 of 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. He begins with this conjunction for, and that indicates that he is now going to explain something he has just previously stated. So what has he stated in the previous sentence? Well, look at verse 14. Verse 14 is what sets up this entire discussion where Paul says this, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. The idea there is that God is going to bring to himself with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And the emphasis there is that the dead in Christ will not be left behind. They will not be left behind. The Thessalonians had worried that if they were not alive at the moment of the coming of Jesus to gather his church to himself, that they would be left behind. And Paul makes the assertion in verse 14 that that is not the case, that God will bring with Jesus to himself those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Verse 15 then begins the substantiation of that claim. Paul wants to establish this in in detail. And so that's why we see that conjunction at the beginning of verse 15, 4. And then he says this, for this, this, this pronoun now doesn't point backward, but it actually points forward. The this points to what Paul is just about to say. And, And if you look in the text, you'll see that in verse 15, right in the middle of verse 15, you have the word that, and that is the continuation of the this. So Paul says, for this, we say to you by the word of the Lord, that, and then you have a a continuation of the idea, and the that is actually going to include everything from the middle of verse 15 all the way to verse 17. There is a very lengthy and packed uh, set of statements that comprise what Paul is saying by the word of the Lord. But this points forward. Now let's look more at this this first half, this this reassuring declaration, where, where Paul says this makes this statement. He says, We say to you by the word of the Lord. And and that immediately emphasizes that the gravity of the need and the weightiness of the response leads Paul to emphasize the origin of his teaching. He he wants the Thessalonians to understand this. This is not just some mere passing comment, an incidental remark. And especially, Paul wants the Thessalonians to understand, this is not just man's conjecture. This is not even just the conjecture of the Apostle Paul. This is something that's much more serious. He says, we say to you by the word of the Lord. And there's a a little nuance here that I want to focus on for just a few minutes that is important in the understanding of this whole 
context. And as we move through these sermons on chapter 4, verse 13 to 18, and then 5, verses 1 to 11, we're going to more and more be talking about eschatology and the study of future things. And as we move forward, I'm going to be able to bring in some of these ideas and and set forward a, a big picture understanding of what is to come, especially for us who are in Christ, what is to come for the church. And there's one important nuance here, and I want to focus on it for just a few moments. Notice how Paul says, we say. We say. Now you might say, well, that's a small nuance. Paul is just expressing that this that this, these words are coming through his pen. We say figuratively, Paul's writing this, but uh, all Paul's saying here is that uh, this content of material is coming through him. But it's important to recognize the tense of the verb. It's present tense, which means we are saying. We are now saying. And that little small nuance when viewed in light of the entire context surrounding this text, this section dealing with the deficiencies of the Thessalonians' faith, this little verb tense is different. It stands apart in a very interesting way, and it's important for us to to catch this. So let's look at at the other instruction from a bird's eye perspective here. Let's look at some of the other instruction that takes place from chapter 4 to chapter 5. And some of this we've already covered. You remember this. First of all, you have the major sections there. For example, in chapter 4, verse 1 to 8, Paul deals with sexual ethics. In chapter 4, verse 9 to 12, Paul deals with brotherly love and its practical expression, cultivation, and, and protection. Then you have this text, chapter 4, verse 13 to 18, which deals with the dead in Christ and their resurrection. And then he goes on in chapter 5, verse 1 to 11, to deal with the day of the Lord. Now, when you look in each one of those sections, with the exception of ours that we're in today, it's always in the past tense. So, for example, when he deals with sexual ethics, he refers to this teaching as something which you received. You received it. We gave it to you. When he deals with the section on brotherly love, he he says, you have no need for anyone to write to you. And then he refers to having already commanded it, an an element of that teaching. And when you look at chapter 5, we're not there yet, but if you just look at verses 1 and 2, Paul says it very clearly, you have no need for anyone to write to you. You yourselves know full well. And so what we see is that in these surrounding topics of discussion, sexual ethics, brotherly love, and even the day of the Lord, these are all issues of reminder. These are all issues that as Paul dealt with the the Thessalonians and their lack, some of that, in fact, a large part of that lack, could be treated simply by this timely written reminder of things that Paul had already taught them in person. But with the text that's in front of us, there is a difference. Notice it is in the present tense. Paul doesn't refer to this teaching as having already been delivered. It's not present, as we're going to see in the Old Testament. It's a teaching that Paul seems not to have been able to, with the time that he had, to 
convey to the Thessalonian believers, which is what contributed to their wrong assumptions. This is new information for the Thessalonians. This is not a reminder to them. Paul's not drawing upon their historical shared experience there in Thessalonica. Rather, this is new instruction. And so putting it in a timeline here, let's let's recollect Paul's interaction with the Thessalonians. Let's remember that timeline. First of all, we remember that when Paul and Silvanus and, and, and Timothy arrive, they begin to preach the gospel and a church is planted. But we also recognize that Paul was forced to depart Thessalonica against his will. It was a very untimely, undesirable departure. In fact, if you read in, in verse 10 of Acts 17, it says that they left Thessalonica at night. You do not travel at night. By, it would be by foot. They're not getting in the bus or not getting in an Uber. Uh, they are, they are, you walk the distance, and it was a full day's walk from Thessalonica to Berea. And you don't do that at night. It's dangerous. But the gravity of the situation required that Paul and, and Silas and Timothy had to flee. What happens then? Paul ends up in Corinth, but we read from his own letter to the Thessalonians that he repeatedly wanted to go back. And, and especially in chapter 3, we read of this, uh, or chapter 2 and, and, and then into chapter 3, Paul longed to return to the Thessalonians. And it's this unique discussion, or this unique narrative or, or, or explanation in First Thessalonians of, of this almost obsession with wanting to get back to Thessalonica. Why is that? Now, he loved them, but it appears that there's a little bit more to it. He hadn't been fully able to pass on to them all the nurturing, all the edification that they needed in the faith. We read in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians that he sends Timothy as his proxy to visit and to continue the work in Thessalonica, at least Uh, for a short time, and then Timothy comes back and identifies deficiency. And like I said, some of those deficiencies that Paul deals with are deficiencies that can be handled by way of reminder. Paul had already taught on those things. But there's this one issue that was new. This one issue that Paul had not been successful in conveying to the Thessalonian believers, and it had to do with this big question of what happens to believers in Jesus Christ who die before Christ comes to receive them. Paul couldn't even refer to an Old Testament text. They had the Old Testament scriptures, as we're going to see in chapter 5, and Paul deals with the day of the Lord, Paul's drawing upon Old Testament truth and even says there's no need to write to you because these truths are are already there as it pertains to the day of the Lord. But there is this this event, there is this, this, this future moment that is not discussed in the Old Testament. It's not revealed there. A new revelation, brand new revelation is needed to deal with it. And And Paul hadn't been successful in his time there, and so now he sees what has happened to the Thessalonians, and now is the time to write. I have to address this issue, Paul says. I have to give you this information. I don't want you to be uninformed. 
Now notice how he prefaces this material. He calls it the word of the Lord. He says, this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Now, if you would look at that, you probably recognize that this is reminiscent of the very popular, very frequent, I should say, the very frequent formula in the Old Testament to describe when there is new revelation being given. It starts in in Genesis 15. The word of the Lord came. And then throughout all the prophets, you have this repeated phrase, the word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord came. And now Paul takes that and uses it to describe what he's about to write. This too is the word of the Lord. But what's fascinating is that in the Old Testament text, the word of the Lord is is properly translated as the word of Yahweh. The word of Yahweh. The personal covenant God of Israel, the one true God. The word of Yahweh. The God of revelation. The God of truth. But here, Paul takes the title Lord, and and whenever Paul uses the term Lord, he refers to Jesus. When he refers to God the Father, he will refer to him either as God or as Father, but Paul loves the title Lord to refer to Jesus. So it's just an interesting note that that Paul is saying here that he is, he, he is identifying Jesus with Yahweh of the Old Testament as, as the originator of truth, the originator of knowledge, the one who gives revelation. And Paul says, I am saying to you, I am saying now to you, by the very mouth of Jesus is essentially what that means. But it, it raises some questions. Uh, when did When did Jesus say this? If it comes from the mouth of Jesus, the question is, all right, how did Jesus deliver this? How did Jesus deliver this? Now, one of the options is to try to find an instance in the, the, the teachings of Jesus, which have been captured by the gospel writers, to try and find an instance where the issues of 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, are treated by Jesus. Now, there are a few places where there are some similarities in what the gospel writers record from the the teaching of Jesus. For example, you can look at Matthew 24, 30 to 31, that includes some of the same concepts, the idea of a cloud, the idea of trumpet, the idea of gathering the elect, and even the idea of a resurrection. And so some scholars say, well, Paul is simply paraphrasing Jesus. He's simply interpreting Jesus or reinterpreting Jesus and is kind of giving a summary paraphrase of Jesus' teaching. I won't read that text in Matthew 24 because of time. You can go back and and read it yourself, Matthew 24, 30 to 31. But that's about the closest text that we find that is anywhere close to what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. But when we do an actual comparison, the, the, the the, the dissimilarities 
are so significant that we have to say, no, this isn't speaking of the same thing. If we read both texts in their context, they're addressing quite different issues. So there's a better option to understand here in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, when Paul says, by the word of the Lord, that this isn't a reference to the ministry of Jesus on earth that he gave during his earthly teaching when he taught his disciples, and then as those teachings were, uh, were recorded by the gospel writers, by the superintendents of the Spirit. No, we're not talking about Jesus giving that teaching during his earthly ministry. Rather, it is best to see that this is a reference by Paul to prophetic revelation, new revelation, to knowledge, to doctrine that had not been given when Jesus was on earth, but is freshly being revealed by Jesus' designated mouthpieces, Paul being one of them. Now you might say, well, where would you find proof for that? How would you justify that conviction? Well, a great place to turn is to 1 Corinthians 15. And we see an important parallel text there where Paul, where Paul touches on and, and, and discusses the very same issues that he's dealing with in Thessalonica. The question of believers in Jesus their death, and what happens to them at the moment when Christ comes to get them. And notice how Paul describes that teaching. He says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Notice how he uses that phrase, the dead in Christ. The dead in Christ. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. And the dead, referring to those in Christ, will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Paul calls this a mystery. And what is a mystery? According to Paul, and how he uses this elsewhere, a mystery refers to, a, to, to knowledge, to teaching, that previously was unrevealed, previously was unknowable. It just... God in his wisdom and sovereignty had not in time, in the progress of his redemptive plan, had not revealed that information. It's a mystery. It's closed. It's inaccessible, unknowable, unrevealed. But Paul says, I will tell you a mystery. Paul takes it upon himself, this very lofty task this mantle of explaining truth, explaining knowledge that heretofore had not been knowable, had not been revealed, had not been communicated to anyone in human history. Paul describes his role 
as a revealer of this mystery. And in this particular situation, mystery refers to here the teaching of the dead in Christ, their resurrection, and how they will be taken to be with God, with Jesus. Now, coming back to our text, one implication from this first point, this reassuring declaration where Paul says, this I say to you by word of the Lord. One very important declaration before we get to the implication, before we get to the next point, and it is this, the details of eschatology are not incidental or optional. Now, you will hear it frequently that people will say, well, eschatology is something that we can fudge on. It's not really that important. It's about the future. It'll all work out in the end. God's in control. We're focused upon the present and, and perhaps on the past and his redemptive uh, acts of, in history, but the future is really not that important. But notice, Paul prefaces his teaching with a very serious reminder, a declaration. He says, I am giving you these details as from the mouth of Jesus himself. And none of us would ever say, well, Jesus can say some things that we can you know, either receive or not receive, give or take, uh, and then there's other things he says that we treat seriously. No, not at all. Brethren, we must understand that these details are from Jesus himself. These details are of utmost importance. We, we cannot ignore them, uh, and, and we cannot afford to dismiss them as if they are incidental or optional. This is serious stuff. And it is exactly what the Thessalonians needed to deal with the practical struggles in their own lives. Now with that, let's get to the second, uh, the, the, the second thing that Paul does here in verse 15. He gives a resounding denial. He gives a resounding denial. In the second half of verse 15, he says this, The dead in Christ are not disadvantaged. Now, this is now dealing with the specifics of the Thessalonian situation. The dead in Christ are not disadvantaged. Notice what he says. He says this, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, notice here, it begins with the conjunction that, and it picks up from the this that Paul used earlier when he says, this we say. Now, here is the content of what is said, that And Paul begins the first part of this instruction with a denial. He's going to get into the affirmation part beginning in verse 16, and we'll look at that the next time. But he first begins with a denial. Paul will do this. We've seen this throughout his teaching. He will teach by way of affirmations and denials. And here he begins with a denial. He's going to deny the assumption that was operating within the Thessalonian believers. And he says this, We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, we have to deal with this issue of the coming of the Lord. And we will touch on this in greater detail, especially in the next sermon in this series. But let me introduce it or reintroduce it. We've seen this word already. It's the word parousia, the coming of the Lord, parousia, the coming, parousia. And this term, parousia, can either refer to that momentary act of coming, of arrival, 
or it can refer to a more extended concept, a more extended experience of presence. You can see the difference even in our, in our English words. The idea of to come is to arrive, and it, it refers to that moment. But the idea of presence speaks more of an extended experience, and there's other things that are involved in that. And so when we come across the word, the coming of the Lord, depending on the context, sometimes it puts a little bit more emphasis on the moment of arrival or, or the moment of, of, of coming, or it can put more emphasis on what happens then in the experience of the presence. So for example, Paul has used this term already in chapter 2, verse 19, and 3, verse 13. 2 verse 19, he says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? And there, parousia has more to do with the events that are experienced when they will be in the presence of Jesus. The concept of reward, our joy, our hope, our crown. And it's speaking of what will happen when Paul and the Thessalonians are reunited in the presence of Jesus. Or we could see it in 3 verse 13 where Paul says, as he prays, that God may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. There's the term parousia again. And there again it refers to the experience of being present with Jesus. And I pointed this out last time when we began this study of this section, that verse 13 is very, very important for understanding the direction uh, of the resurrected and glorified saints in the context of 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. uh, We saw that, that statement in verse 14 that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. There's a misunderstanding that the direction of the bringing is to the earth. And that is incorrect. Because God is always, always described as dwelling in the the throne room of heaven. God the Father. And so the prayer of Paul in verse 13 is that at that moment of the parousia of Jesus, he would present the Thessalonians to God, holy and blameless. Where does that take place? That actually isn't something that takes place on earth. That takes place in the throne room of God. And so when Paul deals with the leading with Jesus to God, or the the, the leading, notice verse 14 there again, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. It's referring to the parousia of Jesus, the coming of Jesus that results in the presentation of believers to God in the throne room of God in the context of that joyous moment when they are proven to be now blameless and holy like their God. There's parousia. And parousia, however, in this text, in verse 15, is is not so much focused on those events. In this text, it is more focused on the act of the coming, the moment, the instant. That's now what Paul is referencing here when he refers to the coming of, of Jesus. Now, why is he referencing this? In what context? Well, he's referring to this 
moment, this arrival of Jesus in the clouds, he's referring to this with respect to two different groups of people. They're all believers, but they're two different categories. Those who are alive and remain, and those who have fallen asleep, those who have already passed away. Now let's look at that first section, that first category. We've already looked at that second category in the previous study. Let's look at the first. Notice what Paul says. He says, we who are alive. In fact, that pronoun there is emphatic. It's emphatic. It doesn't need to be there. And so it raises the question, how are we to understand Paul's use of this first-person plural, we, with respect to these two categories of people? The, those who are alive and remain and those who are fall, have fallen asleep. Now, some have suggested that Paul is just being rhetorical here. Paul is just using that for a rhetorical device He really isn't identifying with either category. It's just uh, just his purpose to encourage the church. That was the view of Calvin, for example. Calvin says this, Paul means by this to arouse the Thessalonians to wait for it, nay more, to hold all believers in suspense that they may not promise themselves some particular time. For granting that it was by special revelation that Paul knew that Christ would come at somewhat later time, it was nevertheless necessary that this doctrine should be delivered to the church in common, that believers might be prepared at all times. End quote. Calvin is basically saying, well, Paul knew that he was going to die. Paul knew that Christ's coming would be later. And, and, and Calvin even makes reference to some special revelation. Of course, we never have any of that in the New Testament. But Calvin just says, Paul really knew that Jesus was coming later, but he wants to establish anticipation for the rest of the church, so he just writes rhetorically. Well, that isn't the best way to handle the text. Instead, a more simple, natural reading is to recognize that Paul uses the pronoun here sincerely. He uses it sincerely. First of all, like I said, the pronoun is emphatic. We who are alive and remain. We. And secondly, if Paul had had wanted to keep himself out of the picture, he would have simply used the third person. He would have either just removed the the pronoun itself and, and just referred to those who are alive and remain, or he could have said they who are alive and remain. But Paul doesn't use the third person, plural. He uses the first. And what we see in this is Paul's own expectation that this parousia of which he speaks, that moment of the coming of Christ through which Jesus or through which God will gather together the church and bring those believers with Jesus to himself for that presentation, Paul puts himself in the category of the living. What does that say? Paul's expectation was that this was going to happen as early as in his life today. Paul believed in a concept that we call the doctrine of imminency. One commentator writes this, Paul's indication that he was looking for the Lord's return was no pious pretense, 
perpetrated for the good of the church. He sincerely lived and labored in anticipation of the day. Paul's words support what is called the doctrine of imminency. And when we talk about imminency, we're referring to a condition in which something could happen at any time or something that is just about to happen. And when applied to this doctrine, the doctrine of imminency says this description, what Paul gives here in verses 13 to 18, is something that could happen at any moment now. When we put it in the bigger picture, it means nothing else is left to fulfill in the prophetic calendar of God's redemptive plan. This is the next thing. There is no way that we can predict this. There is no way that we can set a a system of dates leading up to this moment because even as Paul believed, it could have happened in his own day, even at that very hour. Paul didn't see anything left to fulfill in God's redemptive prophetic calendar. This was the next thing. We see this elsewhere in Paul's writing. We could look at some of these other texts. Let me just briefly note them for you, and you can look at these later. Romans 13, verse 11, Paul says, For now salvation is nearer to us than the day we believed. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52, he again puts himself in the we. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. I do think in Philippians 4, verse 5, where Paul says the Lord is near, it's a reference in that context to the imminency of the Lord coming for his church. Now, when we come back to this text, and and we could look at many other texts that that refer to Paul's belief in imminency, but when we come back to this this text, we see Paul's words support what is called the, the doctrine of imminency. Now, with that said, just a few moments left here. I want to focus on just a few more things in this text. First of all, one very important note to make is with this negation, not. Now, it doesn't come through in the English, but it is very emphatic in the original. Paul uses a rare kind of negation that is strongly emphatic. It's not just the normal not. It is by no means. Never. By no means. Never. This cannot happen. And notice how Paul is applying that negation. He is saying that we who are alive and remain at that moment of the coming of Christ will in no way precede those who have fallen asleep. That verb to proceed refers to doing something before someone else and gaining an advantage. What Paul is strongly and emphatically negating here is that those who are alive at the moment of the coming of Christ for his church have any advantage. Paul is saying, no, they don't. If you are alive when Christ comes for his church, you are not the ones that get first place. You don't have the advantage. The ones who have the advantage are the ones who have already gone before. The ones who have already fallen asleep. They are the ones who have the advantage because they, as Paul is going to say, they are the ones who are resurrected 
first. Robert Thomas writes this, The misunderstanding of the Thessalonians lay in the belief that the dead in Christ would not go as soon as the living to be with the Lord. That a special blessing belonged to those surviving until the coming of the Lord. The apostle responds by pointing out to them that if anything, the dead in Christ are the ones who have the privilege because they will go first to participate in the glory of the parousia. Essentially, Paul is telling the Thessalonians this truth. You know what? If you were alive at the moment of the coming of Christ, your own glorification will not happen until one very, very important thing happens. And that is that those who have fallen asleep in Christ first get their glorified bodies. They are the ones who have the advantage. They are the ones who have the privilege. Now, pulling that all into view here, as we draw some implications from this, first, as a believer, revise change your view of death for those who are in Christ. Again, as I mentioned, there's this constant gnawing idea that if one of our loved ones who's in Christ dies, that they step into some kind of disadvantaged world and we think they would be better if they remained. And Paul's words help us understand, listen, the advantage belongs to them, not to you. That changes our whole understanding of death. For the Christian, we must realize that the sting of death has been removed. We need not look at death as disadvantage and remaining here as advantage. Paul turns that on its head and says, you know what, the opposite is true. Another implication to draw from this is is this. We talk about this important phrase, in Christ. We've been talking about those who fall asleep in Christ. We talk about those who are dead in Christ. And obviously, when we talk about confidence and recognizing advantage of those who die, it only relates to those who are in Christ. And so the issue is to to you who who are here, you think of your family, you think of your friends and around you, you want to live your life in such a way, with such passion and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, so that your family knows that you've got the advantage should you die. You want to leave your family, you want to leave your church brothers and sisters with that confidence that if the Lord takes you by death, There's no wondering. Instead, there is confident conviction that that person is in Christ, and therefore there is rejoicing that that person now has the advantage. Are you living your life in such a way to show that you're in Christ? Is that that your desire to alleviate the concern on the part of those who you leave behind? And then that leads to this important Implication. Are you in Christ? I'm not just talking about, you know, do you put on the show, but are you really in Christ? Because let me say this, all that I've said today about the advantage of death does not apply to you if you're not in Christ. 
then death is only disadvantage multiplied eternally. If you were to die today, would you be in the category of those who have fallen asleep in Jesus? And if you want to talk about the reality of imminency, understand this. Not only uh, do we have to recognize that the coming of Christ, the parousia is imminent, but death at any time is just as imminent. And if it should come to your doorstep, are you in Christ? Would that event usher in your advantage or not? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the instruction of your word which unfolds for us these wonderful truths. And we can put ourselves in the, in the shoes of the Thessalonians and think if we didn't have this truth about the future, about these future things, how much would we suffer? How much would we live with insecurity and apprehension, worry, anxiety? But we thank you that in your gracious condescension and your benevolence, you have opened up truth to us to comfort our souls. And even as we read this text, we are reminded from start to finish that ultimately all of this is a result of your doing. You hold us in your hands. It is secure because of the work of Jesus and that there's nothing that is contingent upon us as to whether we will make it to the end, but rather for those who are in Christ, our hope and future is secure. The sting of death has been removed, and we can rest and be comforted by these words. We pray for those who have deceived themselves, or those who simply have not responded to the gospel message, we pray that you would have grace and mercy upon them and lead them to your son, Jesus Christ, to behold his death and resurrection, to behold comes as a result, the offer of forgiveness of sins, of eternal life. We pray that none here who are in that category would feel ambivalence, but rather would be hounded until the moment of their salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.